0: to you a very good morning to you lovely to see you all here this morning you're very very welcome especially if you're new or visiting you're especially welcome please do go and um, uh, chat to the guys on the welcome team or come and find me or alan or somebody afterwards we'd love to help connect you with the life of the church here or whichever part of the body of christ it is that the lord is calling calling you to, but um, you're all very, very welcome. Over the next few weeks, uh, we're doing a series uh, looking at the Old Testament. Uh, We're gonna be hopefully looking at uh, some of the struggles that some of us may have with it, how we're supposed to read it. And as we looked at, if you were here last week, as we looked at from last week, Matthew 22, Matthew 28, How it's possible, is is it possible that the Old Testament might help us as we grow and deepen in our love for God and our love for one another? David Baker, in his book Two Testaments, One Bible, writes this. One of the most fundamental questions which has faced theology in the church in every age is whether or not Christianity also needs an Old Testament. Is the Old Testament to be thrown away as obsolete? or preserved as a relic from days of yore, or treasured as a classic and read by scholars, or used occasionally as a change from the New Testament? Or is the Old Testament an essential part of the Christian Bible with continuing validity alongside the New Testament? So should this collection of books that we find in here, we're just talking and focusing on the Old Testament, sort of from Genesis all the way through to Malachi, 39 books spanning several thousand years, should it be thrown away? Should it be preserved as a relic or treasured as an integral part of a unified story that leads to Jesus? Uh, Before we go too much further, I should tell you that I love the Old Testament And I always have. Uh, But that doesn't mean to say that I've not wrestled uh, with lots of it. And uh, still do, if I'm honest, still do to this day. You know, so many chapters from my perspective, so many chapters and stories and characters in the Old Testament are sheer joy. While others, quite frankly, are a little bit of a nightmare. When I became a Christian around the age of 15... I started uh, reading the Bible, uh, not from page one. Uh, I actually started reading uh, Revelation uh, for some reason, but um, that's another story. But anyway, after I'd got myself utterly confused and not a little freaked out by a multi-headed dragon and a couple of strange beasts and marks on people's foreheads and hands and things, I decided that I should head back to the Gospels I knew that there were uh, four books about Jesus and I liked Jesus a lot. Uh, So I just read those a lot, uh, you know. But as you'll know, when you read the Gospels, it becomes very clear that both the people who actually wrote the Gospels themselves and indeed Jesus himself, they talk a lot about the first three quarters of this book what we call the Bible or what we now call the Old Testament. And so having traumatized myself a little bit with Revelation, uh, and having found comfort and solace in the person of Jesus in the Gospels, I started reading from page one. And to be honest, it felt more like Revelation than the Gospels. Um, You know, it kicks off, as you'll know, with a couple of naked people. There's some strange fruit, there's a talking snake. Uh, You're not very far into it, and there's a cataclysmic flood. You know, we've only got to chapter nine. Uh, there's some weird angel human people called the Nephilim. who I still, in Genesis 6, I still can't get my head around that. And then it sort of settles down. You know, it's like it's had a bit of a roller coaster, explosive opening. And then it sort of settles down. And, and then we meet sort of vaguely normal looking people, you know, old but normal people, inspiring people like Abraham. Um, And then we read that Abraham and his wife Sarah sort of effectively sexually abused their Egyptian slave. All of which struck me as not being okay. So I thought like, this is the Bible, like this is in the Bible, you know, we never got taught that in our rest. And then really it just unravels from there into the rest of Genesis where it feels like pretty much all of Adam and Eve's descendants, it seems, are lying and cheating and effectively trying to kill each other um, and these are the people that God has committed himself to and you know we're still only in the very first, we're only in the first book of the Old Testament we're only in Genesis so I found myself all at once intrigued and fascinated and at the same time utterly repulsed by much of it and then there's God you know the way or the way that god seems to be portrayed in the old testament which seemed so much more complex than the picture i got of jesus from the gospels jesus was utterly compelling anything he said or did had me thinking he's amazing he's absolutely amazing but the way that god comes across certainly to me as a 15 16 year old in many of these old testament Stories, and you know, don't forget, I'm still pretty much in Genesis or Genesis and Exodus. It actually just made me feel pretty uncomfortable. And so, God seems to defend Abraham when he's lying to the king about who his wife Sarah is. And so, that doesn't sound quite right. And yet, you know, a couple of chapters on in Exodus, God's going to strike Egypt with plagues just to protect Abraham's descendants. And I'm like, this, I don't know, this just doesn't feel right. Do you know what? I'm just going to read the Gospels more. It's, it's safer. So, welcome to a 2,000-year-old wrestling match that following, followers of Jesus have had with the Old Testament throughout the ages. But if you've got a Bible, why don't we turn to Luke chapter 24? This is in the New Testament, granted. This is after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus is appearing to his disciples as they're, a couple of disciples as they're walking along the road to Emmaus. This is Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. It says this, And behold, two of them were going that very day, it's the, it's the same day as the resurrection, and they're going to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place, and the things that had taken place were effectively Jesus at arrest and his trial and crucifixion and so on. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, effectively, what are you talking about? What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered him and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of all the things that have happened here in these days? And he, Jesus, said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel indeed, Besides all this, it's the third day since these things have happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and didn't find his body. They came saying that they'd also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women also had said, but him they didn't see. Verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish men, O slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Verse 27, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going and he acted as though he were going much further, but they urged him saying, stay with us, for it is getting toward evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went to stay with them. And then what happens in Luke 24, starting in verse 30, is that basically they all sit down and they have a meal. And at this meal, Jesus, it's basically a mirror of the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. Um, Jesus does exactly what he did at the Last Supper. Verse 30, he took bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Verse 31, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Verse 33, and they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized them um, by them in the breaking of the brick. And while they were talking about this, verse 36, uh, Jesus turns up in their midst and he's walking into the room and he's like saying, shalom, shalom, hi everybody. Uh, Quite understandably, they're petrified, they think that they're talking to a ghost and he says to them, you know, why are you freaking out? Why are you troubled? This is all paraphrased, by the way. Um, Why are you troubled? You know, why have you got these doubts in your hearts and stuff like that? It's me, look at my hands, look at my feet, look at my side. And by the way, have you got anything to eat? Because I'm starving. This resurrection business is, 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 is hungry work. So they gave him some fish. Uh, And while they're eating their fish together, Jesus says to them in verse 34, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, you know, remember all the things I said to you while we were together, that all the things which were written about me in the law of of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Basically we're saying all the stuff that's written in the Old Testament. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, scriptures, the Old Testament. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You lot are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, the Holy Spirit, But you're to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So, it's clear you know, just from this uh, you know, chapter, Luke 24, but also from a reading of the other bits of the New Testament, it's clear that Jesus is pretty passionate about this collection of books that we call the Old Testament, you know, and the Christian tradition has chosen, at least in its orthodox kind of strain, uh, all the way from Jesus and the disciples on, they've chosen not to ditch the first three quarters of the Bible, even when it's uncomfortable in terms of some of the questions that it raises. You know, the same would be true for Paul and the other apostles. But for some reason, for many of us today, it's not so much. So, assuming that the Old Testament isn't to be thrown away as obsolete or preserved as a relic from days of yore or merely just treasured as a classic and read by scholars or used as a change from when we get bored of the Old Testament or from the New Testament or kept in a box should it be needed one day how should we go about reading it how do we engage with it in such a way that we're not just imposing our agenda onto it but we're approaching it in a way where we're far more trying to get from it something of what it is that God is wanting us to get from it hence the purpose of the series over the next few weeks. Because truth be told, it's pretty confusing, uh, to say the least. Um, And here are some of the ways I think that we've tried to cope with the confusion that we have. We don't really know what to do with it, I think, and so we try and adjust and accommodate how we engage with the uh, Old Testament. You know, it's big, it's complicated, it's ancient. Lots of, across, uh, lots of us across many traditions have ended up settling, I wonder, with a more manageable approach to reading the Bible. And, and so we have a kind of few different examples of what that might look like. And so we have what might be called the, the heroes of the faith approach, where we look for someone doing something good, That we think we should try and emulate and copy. And so we try to find those stories in the Old Testament where people are doing something good and righteous and noble, something of moral value. And so um, we do that so that we can try to be like them. And, you know, we'll think about heroes of the faith like, you know, Abraham and Moses and David, amongst others. The trouble is with this approach many, if not all, of the characters in the Old Testament are pretty compromised in places, many places in some cases. And so this approach involves some pretty heavy editing and a reworking of many of the biblical stories because we soon discover that basically if we're going to take that approach, we're going to have to gloss over and leave out you know, all of the sex scandals and the lying and the cheating and the killing, because it doesn't really fit with hero. And so what we end up doing is we end up turning a bit of a blind eye to those things that make us feel uncomfortable. And so Abraham and Sarah and David and Bathsheba and Uriah would be good examples of that, and there are plenty of others. But at the same time, the Old Testament does have something really powerful to say that should be shaping our way of doing life. You know, and it's historically shaped the way of life of whole communities and nations of people. There's def- definitely something in these narratives that we're supposed to see and either um, avoid or emulate. But it's gonna involve us being much more honest about what we, call, you know, what we might call the warts and all stuff of the scripture. It's going to require a much braver, much more honest engagement with the whole canon of scripture rather than just glossing over the many challenging and tricky bits. So you've got our heroes of the faith uh, model. And then there's what you might call like, I don't know, a a theology textbook model, which is where we sort of essentially treat uh, the Bible, treat the Old Testament a bit like a dictionary So, you know, if we've got a question about heaven, you know, if we've got a question about angels or baptism or salvation or faith, then what we do is we look up the biblical narrative and those passages become a bit like um, illustrated dictionary events, if you like. It's sort of like an anthology with lots of of separate but pretty much uh, mostly unrelated entries. And so then what happens is that certain verses Uh, become what we like to call proof texts. You know, they become a a basis for why we think this or why we think that. And all of that's fine, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, until you meet Christians of other traditions, and the way that they've put together their dictionary entry, if you like, on, I don't know, faith or baptism or polygamy, uh, whatever it may be, Uh, has been drawn from different proof texts there are plenty of parts of the body of Christ who could tell you why polygamy is completely and utterly kosher from the old testament it's different to what we have in our traditions entry and then what happens of course is that people fight and squabble and divide and all this kind of stuff welcome to church Another way that you could interpret the Bible would be something on the long lines of the sort of inspirational heartwarming model, you know, whereby we have a, a verse a day calendar on our desks and it's usually got kittens or puppies on it that help us feel good. And it will often have quotes like Jeremiah 29, you know, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future, or I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me or whatever it is. And again, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But what we end up kind of doing is turning the Bible into a kind of um, a goodie bag, you know, a, um, like a fortune cookie type place, you know, where we just like rummage around in the bag and pull out today's fortune cookie, you know, uh, as a bit of a pick me up. And if we don't like the particular fortune cookie we pulled out today, we'll, we'll put it back and rummage around till we find something that, that fits us. Anyway. Over the next couple of weeks, I want us uh, to attempt, (laughs) attempt, to look at some of the ways that it might be helpful for us to think about how we engage with this complex collection of books that our friends from the Bible Project describe as a unified story that leads to Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you are in a bit of a a kind of a deconstruction with the Old Testament, I just wanna say to you, um, first and foremost, that's more than okay. Uh, you're really really welcome here I would just encourage you before you throw the baby out with the bathwater, is um, just not just swing from one extreme to the other don't just ditch it hang in there with it and let's let's see what the spirit of God would have us do with this let's not ditch the very thing that I believe can really enrich our lives together And perhaps we just need to learn how to treat the Old Testament the way that it was originally designed and intended to be treated and how to read it uh, the way that it's been designed to be read. And so over the next couple of weeks, we'll try our best and work out how the heck it is, uh, or it might be that we're to read the Old Testament and make sense of it. Just back to David Baker, one of the most fundamental questions which has faced theology in the church in every age is whether or not Christianity also needs an Old Testament. Is the Old Testament to be thrown away as obsolete or preserved as a relic from the days of yore or treasured as a classic only to be read by scholars or used occasionally as a change from the New Testament or kept in a box in case it should be needed? Or is the Old Testament an essential part of the Christian Bible with continuing validity alongside the New Testament? I just want to end with uh, by going back to Luke chapter 24. Um, twice in the same narrative in the same chapter in Luke 24 Jesus basically expresses I think what he thinks is the essence of the Old Testament it's sort of like unpacking what he thinks this collection of books is all about and it's not entirely necessarily comprehensive you know like this is everything that's in it but it's the essence of the storyline that we get from the Old Testament Luke 24 verse 46 He told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. According to Jesus, uh, this whole thing is all about him. An anointed representative who enters into suffering and death, and then goes through death miraculously, comes out the other side, so that a new way of doing life, a life of repentance and forgiveness, emerges that's going to set humanity on a whole new direction. And it starts right now, in this moment, from this place, Jerusalem, and extends to all nations on the earth. That's apparently what Jesus thinks the Old Testament is all about this unified collection of wisdom literature telling a story that simultaneously points back to the past and on into the future that centers in and around and on the person of Jesus the Messiah and how is it that Jesus and his followers reached this conclusion how did they how did they work it out like how come they got the head start on this how come they make, can make sense of it and we sort of struggle well you know they didn't have to invent some way of reading the old testament They inherited it from their Jewish tradition. They inherited a set of convictions about the origin and the nature and the meaning of those texts. And not only that, they grew up in communities that modeled how to read it and how to make sense of it all. This story about an anointed one who goes into death and suffering and out the other side in order to rescue those who will trust that this was done on their behalf so that a new humanity can come into existence that goes in a new direction, that relates to God on a fundamentally new basis of forgiveness and repentance, and relates to one another in an entirely new and loving way that opens up a whole new creation. And what if that's what the Old Testament is actually about? And if that's what it's about, why is it so hard for us uh, to see that as we read them? In, uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes to Timothy and says this in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Encouragement to Timothy, and indeed us all, is to continue in what you've learned and how from infancy uh, we've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And over the next few weeks, um, hopefully what we'll do is we'll look at some practical tools which might help us. I hope they will help us step into The Old Testament into this unified story that all uh, leads to Jesus, and do that in a new and fresh way.